Brothers and sisters, it's a great joy to be with you this morning. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll continue our study in Ephesians 4. We'll look at verses 29 and 30 today from Ephesians chapter 4. And as you turn there, I'll offer this introduction to you. On August 24th, 1662, this day, August 24th, 1662, is known to English Protestants as Black Bartholomew's Day. Thomas Lye was a Puritan pastor. He was there at the time. He remarks of this day that this is the greatest turn there ever was in England on Black Bartholomew's Day. Ian Murray, a church historian with Banner of Truth Books, he writes this. He says, this day marked a spiritual watershed which divides two eras in our religious history, so much so that many pastors saw that a turning point had come and that there was cause to tremble for the land's spiritual future. What words are adequate to describe what became known as the Great Ejection on Black Bartholomew's Day, this day, August 24th, 1662? It's on this day that 2,000 preachers were booted out of their pulpits by edict of English Parliament. English Parliament had drafted and passed the Act of Uniformity. This legislation required that all preachers must, number one, be ordained by the Episcopal ordination in the Anglican Church, Number two, offer unfeigned assent and consent to everything contained in the common book of prayer, which prescribed forms of worship for the church, much like Roman Catholicism forms of worship. And third, these pastors must renounce the solemn league and covenant, which years earlier was drafted to achieve a middle ground in the English church and English government politics. As you know, the state was uniquely tied to the church in England in 1662. The act of uniformity demanded conformity to Anglicanism. Theological liberals had their way in the English parliament, and the result was vast liberal power grab by the Anglican-run parliament, which secured political and religious control over the people of England in 1662, effectively removing non-conformist preachers from their pulpits, be they Puritan, Presbyterian, Baptist, or otherwise, to preach in England, you had to become a puppet of the state. 2,000 preachers lost their pulpits, August 24, 1662. What do you do? What do you do on August 24? What do you preach? What do you say to your congregation? This is your last time to preach in your own country in your own congregation, in your own hometown, what do you say to the people that you love, God's people, his sheep that need encouragement? The pastor's job is to offer words of authority, words of grace, words of truth in every moment, especially the most difficult moments that fall upon our lives. What did the pastors of the great ejection preach? What words did they offer that came with truth and hope and grace in a great time of need. Edmund Calamy was an English Presbyterian church leader who did not have a pulpit himself on August 24th, 1662. He was more of an itinerant pastor. However, three months later, when a preacher failed to appear at Aldermanbury on December 28th, 1662, Edmund, because of how widely known and appreciated he was, he was asked to step in and fill the pulpit that morning on the spot, and he did. And he preached from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 13, when the ark of God was brought into battle against the Philistines like it was a lucky charm. You remember the story. 
The text says in chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Samuel, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. You know what happens to the ark of God in the story? The ark of God is lost to the Philistines who take control of it. And the people of Israel no longer have the ark of God. Comparing the ark of God to the church, Edmund offered these words to the congregation on December 28, 1662. He said to them, When the ark of God is in danger of being lost, a true child of God is more troubled and more anxious at what shall become of the ark than what shall become of his wife and children or his own personal estate. He gave them four reasons why the people of God would be troubled in their heart at the loss of the ark, the church. He said, number one, it's because of the great love that you bear for the ark, knowing that the ark of God is the place that preaches salvation. He said, number two, your own personal interest in the ark because the church brings so much good to your own life. Number three, because of the mischief that comes upon a nation when the ark of God is lost. And number four, he said, because you share the responsibility for losing the ark. He said to this congregation, Oh, beloved, it is for your sin and my sin that the ark of God is in danger, and therefore the Lord gives us trembling and burdened hearts as to what shall become of the ark. Then intently he questioned the congregation, asking them, Is there any man here before God this day in this congregation who can consider the great unthankfulness of this nation and the great profaneness and wickedness of this nation and not conclude that the ark is in danger and that God may justly take the ark from us. You complain about taxes, the decay of your trading abilities in our economy, of this civil burden and that civil burden, but where is the man or the woman that complains of this misery, the loss of the ark. Every man is troubled about mine and thine and civil matters, but who lays heart and who regards what shall become of religion, said Calamy. He goes further and he says, woe be to you that enjoy your fullness of outward things and make merry therewith and never consider the afflictions of God's people and the danger of the ark. He says to them, I am to exhort you that you would, all of you, contribute your utmost endeavor to keep the ark of God from being taken. Let us say as David said, if to preach the word and to fast and pray for the nation is vile, then I will yet be more vile. These are strong words to a congregation that he just showed up to preach to, accidentally even. And for our time this morning, I want to ask a couple of questions about Edmund's words his strong words to this congregation, did Edmund Calamy's words honor Paul's commands of Ephesians 4.29, where you've turned in your Bibles this morning? Did the pastor's words conform to Ephesians 4.29? They were strong words, were they not? Did he meet the need of England's greatest spiritual disaster, known as the great ejection, when he took to the pulpit and preached in December 1662. Ephesians 4.29, for your remembrance, it says these words. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Did Edmund edify? 
Did he meet the need of the moment? Did he give grace? Answer, yes. His words drove the congregation to unity and purity and to the building up of the body of Christ. How do we know this? Immediately after he preached, what do you expect happened? Edmund was arrested for disobeying the act of uniformity. However, his imprisonment caused a great disturbance among the members of the congregation to the extent that the king was basically demanded of him that he release Edmund, and he commanded that Edmund be released. Brothers and sisters, this is England, 1662. Does any of this sound familiar to you, what's going on today? Where must our focus be with our lives, with our time, with our efforts, energies, resources? Where was the focus most recently of our Canadian brothers, James Coates, Arthur Pulowski, Tim Stevens, and even as I just shared from Edmund Calamy of England in 1662? Where was their focus? It was so clearly set on building up the church. Don't lose the ark of God is the message. These men use their words for edification according to the need of the moment, giving grace to those who hear, building up the body of Christ, the church, at the expense of their own personal security, facing and going through jail time, even having all kinds of slander said about them outside of the walls of their congregation. This is where we find ourselves in the text today. Having preached unity in the church in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul considers purity in the church from chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. And specifically, in the past several weeks, we've been looking at verses 25 through 32, which is chocked full of commands, commands of your behavior, behavior that requires purity. It is here in the text that Paul presses for purity in the church, commanding five principles of Christian conduct, which give us work, guide our mouths, and guard our hearts that's where we've been at for the last several weeks, and we'll be here yet again next week. Paul presses for purity in the church, commanding five principles of Christian conduct, which give us work, guide our mouths, and guard our hearts. And what five principles of Christian conduct give us work, guide our mouths, and guard our hearts? Number one is truthful speech. Number two is righteous anger. Number three, diligent labor. And as I read through the text today with you, you'll see each of those. Along with today, our study will be focused on number four, graceful mouths, and number five, kind hearts. This is a Christian Conduct 101 class. It's freshman level. It's meant for all of us. We need to step right into it and understand purity in this text. So we've already considered in the previous weeks truthful speech, righteous anger, and diligent labor. Today, let's focus specifically on verse 29 and 30, graceful mouths. Number four in your notes, graceful mouths. And I want to read the whole text with you to set the context for your mind so that you can feel the force of all of Paul's imperatival commands. And then we will look specifically at verses 29 and 30 where Paul is going to have us consider his command of purity in the church by way of mouths that are filled with grace. Paul says in the text in verse 25 of chapter 4 in Ephesians, he says, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. 
He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Paul is commanding believers to engage in truly Christian conduct. The challenge for us in the text is really at this point of deciding even amongst ourselves who is truly Christian. Many, many people call themselves Christian and they are not in fact Christians at all. They grab a title, our title, for themselves. They stick it on themselves as a name badge for their own comfort. It causes them to have popularity a little bit of additional integrity, a little bit of extra respect for them, and it helps to make great friends in this world, even friends at high levels, without ever having been truly saved or born again, as our text would indicate. Every generation of Christians has had to deal with pretenders, phonies, frauds, fakes. It's such an awkward position to be in for us, is it not? This incredibly awkward position, because it breeds confusion in the church about the name Christian. It makes me mindful, last week was the, the anniversary of 26 years since O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder. He didn't use the label O.J. very well, and I understand labels being falled on people. And so too you, Christian, have you taken this label upon yourself? Is it one that you wear rightly? Is it one that you own truly? The demand in the text is for purity in the church, and it is so crucial for purity in the church. For our salvation and the salvation of others, we must obey Paul's commands for truly Christian conduct. And while I'm on this thought, let me give a warning to anyone who might be here among us who might fit in this category, this class of Christian that are pretenders. First, I would say to you that if you are a pretender among us this morning, I would say welcome to you. We want you to be here because there is no better place for you to be than sitting under the preaching of God's word. It is the only remedy for the hypocrisy of your life and ultimately for your salvation. Second, I would tell you this. I want to warn you. I feel it's my need and an imperative upon me to warn you as the preacher that the words I'm going to say are meant for grace and peace to those who believe and obey Christ. But to you personally this morning, my words will feel like war and wrath. You'll not like what you have to hear from me this morning because in so many respects, you're unwilling to do the things that I'm going to share with you. You may nod and smile at me and others, but when you open your mouth, you will remain unable to offer gracious words that build up. The fix for you, I would have you know, is very simple. The fix is simple. And the call in your life this morning is to repent to repent of your sinfulness and your deeds, and to take up your cross and follow Christ alone, having Him as Lord and Savior. Learn to be His slave, especially with your mouth. Also, there's a challenge for us in the idea of those who are truly saved. 
There are those here who are truly saved, and brothers and sisters, there are those among us who are truly saved, but we are lazy, tired, and distracted by the world. Both the lazy and the pretenders need to know salvation. So let's talk about salvation. We must learn what salvation truly is if we're going to have an understanding of how to truly practice Christian conduct and be pure in our speech, as our text will take us there this morning. And for everyone's benefit, let's look at salvation now. Flip back over to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 1 with me. Salvation, can I tell you this, is not a choice that you make. I'll say that again just so it's very clear. Salvation is not a choice that you make, like your choice this morning to drink tea as opposed to coffee, which was an excellent choice, by the way. Salvation is not a choice like your choice to drive a a Toyota as opposed to an Audi. You can laugh there too. (laughs) Many of you all drive Toyotas. I was trying to put you in in the majority camp that time. Salvation is not ultimately about your choice. No, no. Salvation is about God's choice of you. There's a world of difference and distinction in what I just said. Because salvation is something predetermined in eternity past by our triune God. And if you were predetermined to be saved, guess what? You will be saved. It is God who at the right time, in His perfect ways, draws His people to Himself. He draws you to Him. Why are you here this morning? Other than the fact that the God of the universe, the sovereign God, has drawn you into this place this morning? John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The question is, why must you be drawn? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 gives you the answer. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you don't have to look much further to see in verse 4 there's a solution. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And look at verse 8, where Paul doubles down on the idea of grace, saying, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not the faith, not the grace, not the salvation, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His custom craftsmanship, His mighty workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. This is salvation. Is this the salvation that you know? Have you been given ears to hear? We go through this acronym weekly at Community Bible Church. What is this acronym EARS? E-A-R-S. What does it stand for? You get it out of chapter 1. Election, adoption, redemption, salvation. Has God placed that on you? Did God give this to you? Turn back to Ephesians 4 with me. Definitively, I can tell you this, Paul's commands are not given to those who chose Christ of their own strength, but rather for those who have absolutely, unequivocally been saved by God. You need the Holy Spirit to answer to these commands and to do them. And you don't beckon Him to yourself like He's your servant or like a bellboy at a hotel. The Holy Spirit is sent to you by God on God's timing, according to God's power and plan. And for the sake of the saved, the elect children of God, who are being stacked into this local body of Christ, I must preach Paul's purity commands for us, found in Ephesians 4, 25 through 30, focusing today on graceful mouths from verses 29 and 30. This is a command of Paul which you can and you must obey, 
Paul knows this because he knows salvation, having explained it so thoroughly in chapters 1 through 3. Paul's pattern in this purity section is to give a negative command, follow it up with a positive command, and tell you the reasons why he's commanding you at all. You see the pattern very clearly in verse 29. Let's read it together. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good. Hold up right there. Let's stop there. To get his point across, Paul employs some very colorful language in the Greek using the word sapros. Sapros is the word translated unwholesome in your text. But this word goes much further in painting an accurate picture of the types of words that we are known for saying and which we need to say no more. Sapros means rotted, rotten, or putrid, inasmuch as it means unwholesome. Harold Honer says this, Sapros is used of rotten wood, withered flowers, and rancid fish. It generally refers to things or people who are worn out or useless or that which is of little worth. Clint Arnold says the image of rottenness suggests that Paul wants believers to develop a kind of gag reflex to unhealthy ways of talking that will repulse them and cause them to clean up the way that they speak to each other. That's very helpful. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12, verse 33. Matthew 12, 33. Without question, I believe that you know sapros words well. Whether you've spoken them or whether you've heard them. Whether you use these disgusting, filthy, foul words or you've heard them at Walmart or you've heard them in a hockey locker room, maybe you've heard them on the golf course, you heard them at driver's ed, you heard them in your attorney's office, no, you heard them at the doctor's office, Wherever you've heard these words, there's foul words, and you know what foul words sound like. From the four-letter potty mouth words to outright blasphemy, the use of the Lord's name in vain is a cuss word, to off-color jokes, kinky stories, and gross vulgarity. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced you live in this sin-sick world just like I do, and you know unwholesome words. You know what they sound like. You know what they are. So did David which is why in Psalm 141, verse 3, he pleads with God saying to God in Psalm 141, verse 3, set a guard, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. James knows this idea all too well. James, in, in his letter, that he's just trying to press so desperately into the idea of true, truly Christian conduct. James tells us plainly in James 1.26, he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You know, from that verse in James, we can have this understanding. The biblical authority concludes this idea from James 1.26. Your religion is refuse if your words are rotten. James 1.26 tells us that pretenders have patterns of putrid words that come off their lips. And just in the event that you might disagree with these two conclusions about the direct connection between your faith and your mouth, let's add the words of Jesus himself then. You've turned to Matthew 12.33 where Jesus just healed a demon-possessed man and the Pharisees, well, they didn't like it. They didn't like a lot of the things that Jesus did, and this is one in particular. And they say that Jesus is healing on behalf of Satan, that he's an ambassador for Satan, and that's just absurd, and Jesus takes them to task for this. 
in the verses that follow. But I want you to listen to Jesus make the connection between good fruit, good trees, and justification, and the connection between bad fruit, sapros fruit from bad trees, and condemnation. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 33, He says to these Pharisees, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit sapros, bad, rotten, putrid. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So brothers and sisters, which describes you? Do your words justify you, or do they condemn you? Jesus presents the dichotomy that allows for you to test your answer. Are your words bad, rotten, sapros, evil? Or are they like good fruit? Are they like good treasure that goes forward in doing good? Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And my hope for you is that you can see very clearly in your life, in the chronology of your life, in the time frame of your life, that you can see so clearly when you realize the magnitude of the salvation that God had placed on your head and it caused you to recognize the importance of the words that you speak. And from that line of delineation in your life, you can see there was a desire for the transformation of all of the words that you use to the glory of God, to the building up of others, for your own purity's sake, for your own conscience before the Lord. I hope that you see that. Such is the case with a man named Kanye West. Do you know this name? This is an important or popular cultural figure. Kanye is known for a host of words, particularly in his rap songs, that have been absolutely pure evil over the course of his life. And yet, at this time, now, Kanye confesses Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. When Jimmy Kimmel asked Kanye if he is now a Christian artist, Kanye replied saying, I'm just a Christian everything. Regarding the pursuit of earthly gains, Kanye had this to say, you know the devil presents so many flashy and shiny objects, and I just tell you, nothing beats God and a sound mind. That doesn't sound like a rapper would say that. Regarding the healing power of Christ, he speaks to Christ and he says this, thank you for saving me, for replenishing me, and for delivering me. And he reportedly had this to say about his own music. He said, I used language that was inappropriate for a Christian. None of my music is going to have that language in it again. Now, I'm not looking for perfection from Kanye or from any man, not, per not perfection. And at the same time, these words of Kanye's are an indication that God is up to something in Kanye's life. Because the words that I just read to you as quotes from Kanye West, these are good words, are they not? What makes these words of Kanye West good that he would say them? How, how do I know that they meet the objective standard for what is good? What makes for a good word. Fortunately, we have the answer in our text this morning from verses 
29 and 30 in chapter 4, where Paul presents four qualities of a good word that guide our mouths to grace. That's what I want to look at with the rest of our time this morning. Paul presents four qualities of a good word that guide our mouths to grace. Guide our mouths to grace. And with the rest of our time, let's examine these qualities, these characteristics of a good word. It is not the case that good is a relativistic term that anyone is allowed to define good of their own ideas. Not at all. Good is objective because good must conform to the character of God. Paul guides our understanding of good by sharing four marks of a good word which bring purity, unity, and growth to the church. Now let's look at these four qualities of a good word now. Quality number one is that good words build up. Quality number one, one of four, is that good words build up. And you see in the text as we keep reading, Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. Relationships fail. Churches fail. Marriages fail on this point. Words are made for edification. Good words edify. Marriages get difficult and and frustrating on the issue of words, communication, especially when words are not used to build the relationship, but instead are used to attack, tear down, hurt, and even words used in marriage to intentionally destroy. Such was the case for Jan and Chris, as Jay Adam tells the story in his book, The Christian Counselor's Manual. Jan and Chris... They came in for counseling because life had run them into a major challenge, and yet this challenge was also very difficult. It was a very difficult issue. The issue that was so difficult caused so much tension in the home that Chris felt it was necessary to not live there, and so he left the house and was not living with Jan. Within minutes of sitting down with their uh, counselor for their first appointment, Jan tried to cut down everything that Chris said, And Chris attempted to cut down everything that Jan said, and the counselor quickly brought this whole session to a halt. He told them that they were acting like unbelievers, pretenders, fakes, phonies, frauds, and that if the session was going to continue, they would need to be in control of their words and their attitudes. For the counselor, the big issue that brought them in was a secondary issue. A greater importance, of much greater importance for Jan and Chris's marriage was their need for purity that comes from truly Christian conduct, which is so clearly seen in the good words that people use for the building up and the edification of others. And for Jan and Chris, it just wasn't flowing. It just wasn't flowing off their lips. They needed to practice obedience to Paul's command in Ephesians 4.29. I would want you to know something about this word, edification, and I would hope that it always sticks with you and that you never forget it. Edification is a building and construction word. Don't ever forget that. Edification is all about building and construction. It's formed from a Greek compound word, the smashing together of the word oikos and doma. Oikos means house, doma means housetop. This is a construction word. It's a building word, and Paul uses it in Ephesians 4.12, to describe the church, and 4.16 to describe the activities in the church as well. By extension, it can mean personal or spiritual building as well, which is from which we get the term edification. 
Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12. The first quality of any word that comes out of your mouth should be this, the spiritual edification of others. Are you catching this? The first quality, the word that comes out of your mouth is the spiritual edification of others. This is something that has to stick with you. Your words reveal what is in your heart because your words should be all about the spiritual growth of others. Such was the case for our Lord Jesus Christ, such is the case for us. This is primary. Secondarily, you'll find in speaking good words, secondarily, you you will find that you will see your own spiritual growth taking place as you control the words that come out of your mouth. Jan and Chris had fallen into patterns of speaking to get only what they wanted. And as a result, they kept failing in their marriage. Go figure. Who'd have thought that? That's exactly what we'd expect. And their problem with words is the problem that all of us have with words, is it not? We all use words for the building up of our own individual kingdom. It's interesting to tie off and to find the perfect partner in life to be married to and still think that inside of that, you're really not looking to seek a partnership. You really just were married so that you could build your own kingdom and make this person the first beneficiary of the kingdom that you were building. That's not marriage at all. Marriage is about the tearing down of kingdoms and the building up of Christ. This cannot be the case in healthy marriages, that we use our words carelessly. And it will not be the case in the church of Jesus Christ. We're going to use words intentionally. Our words must have a build up others focus, as we see from the preacher in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 11 and 12, where Solomon so intent on words, he says this, verse 10 of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, he says, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collection are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Question for you, are you a well-driven nail? Is that what your life attends to for Christ? Are your words like well-driven nails, structurally creating support, acting to build up? Is that what your words do? Solomon was in search of that as the preacher, and we know that he found it well. What words build up a wife? What words build up a son? What words build up a daughter, a co-worker, an employee? What words build up? What good words are needful to be spoken for your brothers and sisters here at Community Bible Church? There's so much we need in the way of edification, building up through words. Oh, the use of your words. That's our focus today. Turn back to Ephesians 4 where the focus is communication and the use of our words for purity. I want you to understand that good has parameters. It is not subjective. Good has boundaries that are wrapped around it, that hold it in tight, as we saw last week, because the word good is the word agathos in the Greek, which is a characteristic of God. God alone is good. And a good word is a word that intrinsically, morally, and eternally bears God-like qualities, especially in this that a good word builds up now, today, in this very moment that I'm speaking. Which takes us to the second quality of a good word. Quality number two of a good word is that good words are timely. Good words are timely. We see this next in the text as Paul says, 
verse 429, speak only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. The New American Standard Bible adds those words of, of the moment, according to the need. But don't we also understand that need means of the moment, that needs come and go, and so we recognize the need of this moment. I want to start off by saying to you that silence is not the policy of a true Christian. Silence is not the policy of a true Christian. God did not make us in silence, nor did He leave us in silence. He has always spoken. Speaking is absolutely necessary for us in our human condition because speaking, words of edification, timely words, is a quality of deity. Your silent treatment tactics, husbands and wives, are opposed to your Christianity. I hope that helps a marriage even right now. The silent treatment between husbands and wives is not beneficial for your Christianity. It doesn't speak highly of that. Christians speak. Christians speak. We must speak on behalf of God to the edification of others. And for the proclamation of the gospel, we must speak. We defy any government who would seek to silence us in our speech. Our message is salvation and edification. It is life and peace and truth. If our greatest challenge is speaking, in speaking is fear of man, which makes us far too often stay silent, then our second great challenge is timing. Because sometimes, and even often, our timing is terrible. Our timing in our speech is terrible. John MacArthur says, The gracious words of Christians help retard the moral and spiritual spoilage in the world around us. And I would add, but only in so much as they are spoken in a timely fashion. He goes on to say, Telling men of their sins is a gracious thing to do if it is done in the right purpose and in the right spirit. And again, I would add, in the right timing. Are we aware of the times in which we live? Are we situationally aware of our need to speak? Are our responses battle-tested, having control over our emotions because we've been down that road before, and having a timely word to deliver that offers edification and truth? It was the case that in 1999, I was at Officer Candidate School in Pensacola, Florida, and it was there at Officer Candidate School in Pensacola, Florida, that I was walking down a hallway one afternoon, and four candidate officers rounded a corner in front of me. They're my superiors at this moment, and a response of me is demanded in this instance. I was a little surprised, but I did quickly identify that the group of four was split, two men and two women. So promptly, I braced my back up against the bulkhead, had a position of attention with my being, and I gave them the honor and the respect that they were due with the greeting of the day. And I shall never, ever forget what I said. I said, good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, females. <laughs> I want you to know that what I said was accurate. It was absolutely accurate. And it was absolutely the truth, what I said. But I think you would find with me that it didn't fit the context and it didn't meet the need of the moment. And I can assure you that I paid a price for that. <laughs> Last week, I mentioned the diligent labor of both Martin Luther and his wife, Catherine, whom he called Kitty, my rib. 
Catherine was a considerable help to Martin in so many ways. In one particular time, Warren Wearsby writes this, Martin was carrying around many burdens of ministry and fighting many battles. Usually jolly and smiling, Martin was instead depressed and worried. Catherine endured this for days. One day, she met him at the door wearing a black morning dress. That's not a sunrise dress. That's a dress of death, a black morning dress. Who died? asked Martin. God, replied Catherine. You foolish thing, said Martin. Why this foolishness? It is true, said Catherine. God must have died or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. Wives, your husbands often need a timely word of correction from you in their moping and in their mourning. Husbands, it is crucial that you recognize the verbal needs of your wife and children, the gentle, gracious needs of your wife and children. A good word is known by the situational awareness of its speaker. Do you agree? A good word is known by the situational awareness of its speaker. Are you situationally aware? Do you see the needs of others? Are you prepared in your heart to deliver edifying words in a timely fashion? Brothers and sisters, how necessary for our growth are timely words of encouragement and edification right here in the body of Christ at Community Bible Church. They're so necessary. They're so necessary. I need them and you need them. I know many of you would say, but I don't work for the praise of men, Oliver. And I understand that thought. I do. But I wish that maybe you would sometimes work for the praise of men. Maybe the need of the day is to do the hard work. Do the laboring, the diligent laboring, that you might cause the other brother to open his mouth with encouragement so that God might be doubly blessed. Brothers and sisters, are your eyes up and looking around and seeing all of the joy and all of the life and all of the abundance and all of the service that is happening at CBC? You servants need to receive encouragement and edification. You need it far more often than you get it. And all of us have need to increase the frequency with which we deliver those words of edification to you don't tell me that you don't need encouraging words and edification. Your heart absolutely does. You're human. God made us to receive those. They're very helpful for us on our journey. They point us in the right direction. There's a need for a timely pat on the back. You need to get them from me and from others as we lift our heads and see all of the work that God is doing in Christ through each and every one of us. Every one of us has reason to look around, pay attention to speak encouragement, to speak edification, that the grace of God might overflow our fellowship. And it is at the point of grace that we arrive at the third quality of good words. Let's look to the third quality of good words. Number three for your notes, good words give grace. Good words give grace. We see this next in the text as Paul offers a purpose clause saying in verse 29, speak only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that, purpose, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let's consider grace here for a moment. I'm going to labor in this thought of grace for a moment. I want to make sure that we have a real solid foundation of grace 
at Community Bible Church. What is grace? Grace, in a word, is favor. Grace is favor. Grace is simply unmerited, unearned favor, which really is redundant when you say grace. All of that's wrapped up. You shouldn't have to say those things, but that's what you need to today to help explain grace because grace gets so convoluted in the church today. Grace is simply unmerited, unearned favor, which is to say you can't work to get it. You can't work to get it. Let me put you in a situation where you'll understand this all the more. Suppose, suppose that you're a spoiled, rotten, undisciplined four-year-old and you need grace. That's why you have grandparents. <laughs> the grandparent relationship with a spoiled, rotten, undisciplined four-year-old is a relationship built on grace. Grace is given. It has to come from a giver, from someone who owns grace, who knows grace. And as a result, God is the owner of all grace. The ultimate grace giver is God. And as a result of Him being the owner of grace, grace is always good. Often, grace is soft and gentle, and yet other times, grace is hard. Consider the grace of God's discipline, which is spoken about in Hebrews 12, 6, which says, that God only gives discipline to those whom He loves. As a Christian, we must love and embrace discipline. If you don't embrace the discipline of God, which is His grace, Hebrews 12 says that you are an illegitimate child and you are that pretender that I had mentioned earlier if you don't love the discipline of God. As we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and verse 8, by grace you have been saved. And as a result of the salvation that God has graced you with, Paul knows that God's elect, redeemed children can and must be deliverers of grace, just as God is a deliverer, a giver of grace. He knows this about you because he knows the salvation that God placed on you, putting inside of you at the moment of salvation the person of God, the Holy Spirit. Do you know then what kinds of grace you are to give? Are you to give soft and hard grace? Are you to give common and special grace? What grace are you to give? Do you know the biblical categories of grace? Well, let me go at length to help you identify these major distinctions of grace. Does God give grace to all men? Answer, yes, he absolutely does. You know this from the rains that we received this past week and the warmth of the sun that hits your body. Does God give soft and hard grace to all men? Are all men rebuked? Yes. God gives soft and hard grace to all men. We both had all. Does God's grace give salvation to all men? Answer? Oh, okay. Problem, preacher. God's grace quit on me. How can this be? How can a part of God's grace be withheld? Is God's grace divisible? No. God's grace is not divisible. It is distinguishable. God's grace is distinct. What distinction must we make in our understanding of grace? What categories must we know about God's grace? that would cause eternal life to be in this category 
and the rising of the sun and the falling of the rain to be in this category of grace. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, we'll look at verse 22. On the way to Luke 4, I'm, I'm talking about grace and I need, to, I need to give you the categories. I need to give you the answer to the question that I presented to you. I'm, I'm going to give you these two theological categories and I hope that you never lose them because when you read Scripture, it helps so much to understand and discern these categories. They're important to us. We must understand God's grace is both general and special. Those are your two categories. Write them down. Do not forget these categories, these distinctions in God's grace. General and special. Just as God's love and His revelation are both general and special. Do you know this distinction? The distinction between God's general and special grace, love, and even His revelation. Let me share the revelation distinction with you. As we see sun, moon, and stars reveal enough in general about God that men are responsible before God for their rebellion. That's general revelation. Look at the windows. Everything outside that window that you see with your eyes is a general revelation about God making all men responsible before Him for their disobedience and their sinfulness. And knowledge of salvation is only found in God's special revelation the written revelation that you hold in your hands, the Bible. God's love as well is a general love for all of mankind, which you know oh so well from John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world, and He does, even now, love the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that all those believing in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But God has a special love for those elected for salvation. According to Paul in Romans 5, 8, we read, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us, and so much is the power of the cross that a salvation is placed onto you, assuring your arrival in heaven to be with him forever. In this life, you can have certainty and confidence in the salvation that God has supplied because of the death of Christ, because of God's love, His special love. His general love for mankind allows your lungs to keep working right now. His general love allows your brain to keep functioning so that today matched the order of yesterday so that your cognition and your thoughts make sense one after the next. God's love is allowing that to happen for you, even if you don't love Him. His special love is different. You've turned to Luke 4, 22, where Jesus' ministry is just beginning in His hometown of Nazareth. What excitement! Jesus is in His home synagogue, ready for the reading of the Word of God and what is handed to him on this day is the scroll from Isaiah. Oh, wow. Hometown preacher, Isaiah, this is a softball and Christ is going for a grand slam. We see this in verses 8 through 19. All the details have been set for Christ to preach from Isaiah, to preach grace, to preach salvation, to preach his own gospel from this text, and he does powerfully, saying to them in chapter 4, verse 21, concluding his thoughts with this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, that's just wonderful. What an incredible moment 
in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is special revelation. This is special grace from God. This is the knowledge of salvation going from the hometown kid to the hometown crowd from Isaiah chapter 61. Everyone should be saved at this very moment. This is the special grace of God, right? Salvation grace. It's right there. What did the crowd say about Jesus' words of special grace? Verse 22 of chapter 4. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Uh Uh-oh. Does this question speak well of the hometown crowd? It doesn't. From this question, were the Nazarenes given special grace? Were they given ears to hear? No. No, they weren't. This question seeks to establish Jesus' humanity, specifically the insignificance of his birth to a carpenter. His hometown crowd could not fathom that the carpenter's son was Emmanuel, God with us. And in the following verses, Jesus goes to explaining to them truth and hard grace. He says to them, and as much as salvation has come, it has not come here. Salvation is going to outsiders. I want you to remember that John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. We read that earlier this morning. Consider that as we read these words. Read with me Jesus' gracious words of truth and rebuke in verses 23 through 30 to his hometown crowd. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Do a a little sign for us, Jesus. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a widow who was, or to a woman who was a, wit, a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Well, how did Jesus' words go over with this crowd? How did Jesus' words of grace and truth and rebuke sit with them? Oh, We find out very quickly. Verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Murder was on their hearts at Christ's words of grace. But passing through their midst, He went his way. What must we see from this important moment in Jesus' ministry? What do you need to take away from this important moment in Jesus' ministry? Jesus is the greatest giver of grace the world has ever known. We find his words here to be hard words of grace. We find them not only to be special words of grace, but we also find them to be general words of grace. 
the audience was not given ears to hear the power of his message in his hometown synagogue. I need you to hold on to those categories, and I want to, I want to fill your, your mind and your heart with Jesus' words of grace that are soft and absolutely special as well. I want you to see that your Savior knows both. He owns both. He knows how to speak grace. He knows how to offer a timely word. And these people got the timely word that they needed. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. Turn to Matthew 8. It is the case that Jesus passed through their midst in Nazareth, and he went on down to the Sea of Galilee. And in Galilee, he graciously preached the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew, as recorded in Matthew's five, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Before we head back to Ephesians, I want to give you Jesus' soft words of grace, which lead directly to salvation. I want you to see it in the text. I want you to understand these soft words of grace as well. You're in Matthew 8. Read this account with me. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowd followed him. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Verse 2. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. How awesome is that? The leper is helpless. He's totally dependent. Something from outside of him will have to fix him. I would hope that you understand something of leprosy. It's an end-of-life disease. It's just going to tear apart your flesh and wither you away. Leper colonies mean that people get excluded because they have leprosy. And he's a picture for us of, of the, the leprosy that is our spiritual condition. We're all depraved. We're all desperate. We're all in need. And yet in his frailty, in his weakness, in his total helplessness, this man, he comes in search of the greatest grace giver ever known, knowing this about the grace giver that is Jesus Christ, that Jesus is able to give grace, but by no means is he obligated to give grace. He is desperate for special grace, this man is, supernatural grace. How did he know to come to Jesus? Who taught him that Jesus had all this grace to give? And how did Jesus respond to this man who was totally humbled by his incurable leprosy? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed, verse 3. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. You need to see this. You need to see this text. Jesus graced the leper with supernatural power. He graced him physically in touching him and graciously in speaking these words to him. Paul's command for us in Ephesians 4.29 is to offer words of grace, just like Jesus did to this leper. Certainly both soft and hard words of grace according to the need of the moment, as he did in Nazareth. Certainly words of common grace we are supposed to speak being able to politely engage in society, but most importantly, brothers and sisters, as you think about the quality of the words that you extend inside this church and outside this church, most importantly, we need to offer words of special grace, special grace words, words that speak of eternal life, eternal words that lift up brothers and sisters in Christ, God-glorifying gospel truth words Special words that lead to salvation, special gracious words offered for purity, for unity, and for the building up of the body of Christ. Offer words that are eternal to one another. When you say words of grace, do you understand how eternal those words are because they build up the body of Christ? Turn back to Ephesians 4 so we can close our time this morning. 
failure on our part to speak special revelation, special grace, gospel truth is disobedience to Christ. It harms our confidence in the salvation that has been placed onto us. It harms our confidence in the Holy Spirit's ability to work in and through us. And it grieves the Spirit because failure to speak makes more of you and your weaknesses than of the power of the Spirit to overcome all of your weaknesses. And when we arrive at a conversation about the Holy Spirit and His ability to help you speak grace, we have come to the fourth and final quality of good words. Quality number four of good words, good words don't grieve the Spirit. Good words don't grieve the Spirit. We read this in Ephesians 4.30 as Paul continues explaining the quality of good words that we must speak saying, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There is so much to discuss in this verse. And what I know is this, if I'm going to explain the fourth quality of a good word right now, I will grieve your spirit because I've taken too much of the time already. And if not you, I'll grieve those servants watching your kids in the back room. In order to meet the need of this moment and continue to give grace, I need to give you quality number four of a good word next week. And so you can plan on that to be here for quality number four of a good word as we finish up this section of the text. But don't miss what we saw today. Don't miss what we saw today. Paul's command, Paul commands us to have gracious mouths. Paul gave us the negative command, no rotten, unwholesome speech to come from your lips, no sapros words. He gave us the positive command, speak good words. And Paul presented four qualities of good words in Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. Good words build up, good words are timely, good words give grace, good words don't Grieve the Spirit of God. What must you take away? Take these things away. First, take, take away this. Take away the command for a pure mouth. Paul's command is for believers, those whom God has saved. And if God has placed His grace and favor on you and redeemed you from the destruction of your old way, then God commands you and disciplines you for obedience all to His glory. Were you grieved by the message today? Do you sense a need to purify the words that come out of your mouth? Edmund Calamy would offer this to you this morning. He said, Beloved, if you would ever reign with Christ when you die, He must reign in you while you live. You'll know this by the words that come out of your mouth. Will Christ reign over the words of your mouth? Then embrace Christ's command. Second, I would tell you, the good of a gracious mouth is what you can take away. The good that comes from a gracious mouth. The good. How many blessings can be found in building up the body of Christ through good words? The building up of your family, the building up of the church, the smiles of your brothers and sisters, the engagement and encouragement of each of those relationships. So much good is found in the building up of the body of Christ. All our joy is in the finished work of Christ on the cross, having given us salvation, sanctification, and glorification with Him forever. This is the gospel. How good is it to have the only gospel that saves and to use our mouths to graciously share it with others. How good is participation in the gospel? Edmund Calamy says this to you, what good will your estate, your household do for you? Or what good will your business do if the gospel be gone? What is the glory of Christianity but the gospel? The gospel is shared by your mouth. Speak the gospel, speak grace, and use your words to build up. And finally, I would want to have you take hope away, the hope of a gracious mouth, the hope of a gracious mouth. I told you about Jan and Chris and their broken marriage. Their marriage turned around, I would have you know, 
completely turned around. Jay Adams says this. He says, they didn't know how to communicate as Christians should. They were using words to cut each other up, and they were expending their energy by tearing each other apart. In repentance, they began to attack problems with words instead of attacking each other. Once they figured out that they were in Christ, they had all the horsepower required to solve their big issue in life. Do you believe that knowing God's plan and salvation and gospel accurately actually solves marriage problems? I do. How much hope can be placed in obedience to Christ for the solution to the major problems that will attend your marriage? How big is your hope in the power of simple, sweet obedience to Christ's commands? How well will it go for us to know and do the commands of Christ, especially speaking timely words of edification? Does the perfection of the gospel Drive your obedience and give you endless hope and peace. I would hope so. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning and for the reminder that the text gives to us about our words, how our words must be filled with grace. They must edify. Father, our words must be timely. Let us sing praise to your name now as we reflect on these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.